The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by INS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Today we have a really exciting follow-up program with Robin Aisha Lansong, just returned from Zimbabwe. Robin is a multiple near-death survivor. In 1977, when Robin was eight years old, an American man abducted her and took her to Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. He eventually abandoned her there, but she was taken in and cared for by the people of a small tribal village. Now, Robin is here to continue the story of her personal quest to understand what happened to her there when she was kidnapped. If you haven't already listened to part one of uh, Robin's story and uh, her description of her NDE when she nearly died, I suggest you check out our past shows button at NDE Radio for her interview of March 6th, 2017. Robin, welcome back to NDE Radio. Hi, Lee. It's good to hear your voice. Oh, it's wonderful to hear yours. Oh, you've got to tell us about this trip. I was uh, I was enthralled with some of the descriptions, especially the one that uh, John wrote, your husband, about uh, as you were traveling toward the toward the farm you were going to stay at at the Limpopo River, and uh, how you were beginning to recognize landmarks, and then suddenly this donkey cart appeared. Maybe you could tell us about that. Oh yeah, it was an incredible moment. <laughs> so so this was our. My first return trip in 40 years to now Zimbabwe. I had been there at eight years old in 1977. And and what was really kind of overall remarkable for me is that I've been holding all this as memory for 40 years. And so to go back and meet the people again, be on the land again, find the exact locations, shifted something for me that I, I still hardly have words for. We've only been back about two and a half weeks. And so the moment we were, we had been there about um, four days, and we kind of chose to stay in a in a place not quite at the key location. Um, but as we were driving into the key location where the um, villages that the people took me in and where all the events of war happened, where I had my near-death experience, as we were coming in, we're driving in in a vehicle on a very bumpy dirt road, very like lots of kind of potholes and um, kind of difficult to navigate. And coming out, uh, we had I had seen a, like a four-minute video of Miami, and so I knew that she was the one who was part of the second family that took care of me. And I think she had not seen a picture of me as an adult. I don't believe anybody had shown her that. So we were we were driving into where we were going to be staying right next to the um, to the lands where she lives, and and again this donkey cart is coming towards us. Since John's in the front seat, he spots her and says to Vanessa, who's our host, "Is that Miami?" So Vanessa stops the vehicle. Their donkey cart stops. We both literally get out of our vehicles and run to each other. Uh-huh. Forty years we haven't seen each other. She doesn't speak English. I don't speak Venda. And we embrace. And she's a strong woman, and she practically picks me off my feet. <laughs> and the validation and the homecoming and the reunion that ran through my whole body, I was speechless. I was 
weeping. And and then she kind of, you know, stopped rocking me so much and she was patting my head and saying, Sorry, sorry, sorry. Hmm. And and then she bent me forward and she checked my head where the gunshot wound would have been forty years ago. Hmm. And I knew exactly what she was doing. And that for her it's been forty years of not knowing what happened to me. And that, you know, just recently last about July when we when we found her and then she got news that I had actually lived. You know, that was her first knowing of what had happened to me because when they um, sent me across the river to the South African side, they had no way of knowing what had happened to me. So she had just, you know, her family had taken great risk to care for me. And, and so this was her first knowing in her body that I was okay and I had lived. Was there any way you could tell her about your near-death experience? Yes, we we got to spend a great deal of time with her, and we did uh, we did interviews, um, and so we had tr- people who were translating back and forth, and and that's an interesting part. I I didn't get so much get into the near death with her um, because um, partly because the challenge in the translating in terms of concepts about that. But we were really there to kind of get the context of the whole story, and so our focus was on more um, kind of the, the kind of literal facts of the story in terms of like I was here, she found me here. You know, this is what her family did. This is how her family um, hid me. So we did focus more on those things. But the great thing is I now have connections with the people who can do translations, and so I can, you know, we've established this relationship and. We can continue to inform her, and she can answer more of my questions as they come up. There's something about this story that, uh, you know, every once in a while it crosses my mind when I hear descriptions of the other side, why we're spending our time here <laughs> at all. And then a story like yours reinforces my understanding of why we spend time here, mm-hmm. what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, and I think it's been writing it all down and in my manuscript that also helped me put that together to see that I went from a very abusive family where I wasn't bonded and I wasn't receiving mothering to being abducted, which was extremely traumatic, but then being taken in by this village and the culture of it. it we have to shift our Western American thinking in terms of we often have a family unit and children are very much um, connected just to their parents, you know, and maybe some extended family. But it's a different concept in Africa that other people are raising your children. And in, in some traditions, literally, when your child is young, you know, the girl goes to the aunt or the boy goes to the uncle to be raised. So so I realized their cultural notion of just taking a child in because I'm a child needing mothering was very strong. And that that tradition that they have of you know raising a child, even if it's not your biological child, is really the factor that saved my life. Mm. And, and then in writing my, writing my manuscript, my husband at one point came to me, and he's an amazing content editor, developmental editor, and and he said to me, okay, you keep telling me about you're loved by these these six beings you meet on the other side, 
but you're using the same words. Tell me how they were each different. And tell me, you know, what was unique about the first being and the second being and the third being. And so I went back to work and I really differentiated the unique factors of what they transformed in me and just got beyond using the words love and embrace. And I, and I handed it back to him and he said, now I get it. Now I get that these beings were never going to let you go. They were going to receive you wherever you were at. Because when I first crossed over, I was resistant. I wanted to go back because I had finally had found family in the people of this village. Yes. And and I didn't want to be. I didn't want to be dead. And as beautiful as it was, I, I was resistant. And so I actually kind of went into a darker realm because that resistance needed to be worked through. And... And so what happened, each being met me where I was, moved me forward through that resistance, through that thinking I had to make it on my own, which is very understandable for being an eight-year-old who had survived what I had survived, to working, helping me work through to receive greater and greater levels of love. And so by the end, I was, my capacity to receive the magnitude of love that I was being offered by these beings was incredibly different than when I first crossed over. And so the being, I think that's... I, I was going to say, the being that you described as a bodhisattva who took you through an, into a cave and through a life review, mm-hmm. um, was that was sca- scary at first, but then you came to recognize how comforting and kind his intentions were. Right. I, yeah, I never thought he was doing anything to me because... What was happening in this dark cave was all the screaming I had repressed when I was being abused in the U.S. All of a sudden, that that needed to be purified, so it was echoing off all the rocks. And every time I'd held back a facial expression when I was being abused, because that would make my abuse worse, that was in the cave. And so it very much was, by many people's definition, a hell realm. But it was my own and my own emotion that I had repressed that I needed to bring home to myself. I needed to integrate back in so I could go forward as as a whole being. So as difficult as it was, that bringing that pain and the anguish and myself home was really essential in being able to then receive greater amounts of love. And that leap off the cliff... So dramatic and yet so liberating, I would think. Uh, what a, what, I, I have to remind the listeners that, uh, to get a complete, um, more complete understanding of what you went through in your near death experience, they should go back and listen to our first interview back in March. They can find it in our past shows. I, I wanted to ask you too about the, the being you described as a royal shepherd. Mm-hmm. And, and what that, uh, what, tell us about that. Um, so, especially with my perspective now, so I'll give, I'll give listeners a little bit more context about my story. Okay. So, so I was in this village, I was being accepted and loved and cared for and being taught the singing. I was being taught how to listen to the song in the land because the ancestors are in the land and to listen there for guidance on how to live, how to plant, how to be kind to another. And and so there was a 
um, and this is the benefit of going back to the actual location. So the village I was in, the group of huts I was in, was kind of protected on um, kind of two and a half sides by uh, a stone outcropping. And so it's a very held group of huts. So, but on the other side of that stone hill, um, there was a battle happened. And so I had wandered too far from the village that direction, and I was I was shot, and the bullet grazed the top of my head, and then I began to die of blood loss and shock. And and so it kind of moving forward, I'll come back to that, that piece in the near death, but it was my um, one of the mothers that had been so good to me that found me and sang to me a calling song. She was calling me back with her medicine song. And her song, she called on the ancestors to join her in her singing. And so that made the song so powerful, it crossed through the veils to where I was on the other side in death. And when I heard that song, I remembered my purpose was to also sing my medicine song to people. And I hadn't done that purpose, so I came back. And so what happened is they, they took me back to the village and put um, medicine on my head and, and did a singing prayer for me. And I was uh, recovering and still weak but doing okay. Um, and But then the soldiers came back and attacked the village. And in my attempt to escape, uh, I collapsed. And the interesting thing is, I have now allowed myself to remember that because I've allowed myself to remember more about the attack on the village. And and this is a key point, that sometimes when we have trauma, there's also the gift in there. And that sometimes when we're most worn down and most broken open is when our strengths, our potential is revealed. And so I had another near-death experience from collapsing then. And... The painful part is that it's, it looks like I'm the only survivor of that attack on the village. Mm-hmm. And so what was key in my first near-death experience, that the first time I was shot, was that the first two women who greeted me were two black women that were very familiar, but I couldn't name. And I now realize that two days later, my two mamas were going to be killed but they were already there greeting me in my first near-death experience before the attack on the village. Oh, interesting. So that is very interesting in terms of, you know, our concepts around time and, you know, what is our relationship with the other side and what is the future and what is the past. And And the possibility that we could be in both places at once. Yeah, and I, I just had this realization. I think I gave my talk down in Arizona, and and somebody asked me a question that kind of pressed me to really, really evaluate who those two women were, and I realized that, you know, it was two days before their death, but they were already the ones greeting me when I had my death experience. And so, I, think, I think you described them as older sisters at one point in our first interview. Yeah. And uh, I thought, I wonder if this could have—they could have been older sisters from a previous life. I I have had an astrology reading where the person said that before this lifetime, I've had very many tribal lifetimes, and that I had known what it was like to belong and to be part of, you know, a very uh, intact culture of 
of village and tribe, and mm-hmm. that that it was kind of in this lifetime that I was experiencing abuse and where I didn't have a sense of belonging and family. And you also mentioned that coming out of the uh, the place you were in where it was wet, you described it like a, a Ireland, and I thought, well, there were tribal <laughs> tribal situations in Ireland in, in past uh, in the past that you might have been a part of that as well. Right? Yeah, isn't that interesting? And so to fill readers in, um, kind of when I went into that darker realm because I was resistant to you know being on the other side, I kind of fell into a dark um, to a, into a, a stone stairwell that was very ancient. The steps were worn down, and the the sky was dark, and it felt to me kind of what I would picture as, as Ireland on a kind of a dark day without much sunshine. And what's interesting is that I recently did my genetic uh, DNA test, mm. and I almost fell off my chair when the first report said Robin Lansong Irish, and <laughs> never discussed in my family. Scottish was discussed, but never has anyone... Uh, my parents or grandparents ever said anything about Irish. So the fact that that was a very large marker in my genetics was a mm. big surprise to me. You Do you know the legends about the uh, 10 northern tribes from Israel merging, crossing, escaping from the Assyrians, crossing the Caucasus Mountains, and merging with the Indo-Europeans to become the Celts? Oh. There is evidence in Ireland and Scotland of... Um, of uh, David's harp, for instance, signs of um, the Hebrew culture having been transferred up to Ireland and Scotland. So mm-hmm. that the, there, it's a whole whole other story that we don't have to get into now. But right. your your roots could go, uh, you know, back to the Middle East as well. Right. Uh, now the royal shepherd. Hmm. Um. You know, when you say something like that, it, it's almost a Jesus figure. And I thought I'd ask you more about that. Yeah, that's a great question. And so my aim in writing my book is just to write my observations as a child and not put any of my adult interpretation. It's been a really interesting writing challenge to keep the language kind of within an eight-year-old vocabulary and eight-year-old perspective. And so... So I experienced this being he was, and and the funny part is when I was writing about it, I thought, oh, this isn't very important. And my husband said, mm, I think you're holding something back here. I want you to go write this down. And, and he would interview me. And so he said, well, what did he look like? And I said, well, you know, he had a beard and, and he had a robe on that was kind of tan white and it was a thick kind of felted fabric and kind of wide sleeves. And I said, and he had a, a sheep herder staff with that curve at the top. And my husband looked at me and started smiling. <laughs> I wasn't raised Christian. That wasn't really part of my upbringing. And, and I said, why? Is that somebody important? <laughs> and he started laughing and said, the Lord is my shepherd. And I said, oh. <laughs> and, and at that moment, I really got it of, I did see Jesus. But, that was Jesus. And and that has been a real shift for me in in consciousness and in relationship. 
And again, I'm writing the book in a way where I'm not naming it that because I want everybody to have their own interpretation. Mm-hmm. And what was really heartening to me is I had I hired somebody from South Africa to do a round of edits on my book. And he wrote back to me and said, you have just described this African pharaoh. And I said, perfect. That's exactly what I want. Everybody, like, I'm just stating what I observed, and everybody brings what's meaningful to them to the images. You have... Um put together a beautiful art book called Art Inspired by My Death Experience. And I wanted to ask you about, first of all, has your, has your journey that you, to, to Zimbabwe, uh, confirmed the art that you, uh, that you've drawn or do you expect that it will change future drawings in any way? Oh, that'll be interesting. Like I said, I've only been back two and a half weeks and I haven't done a drawing yet. My big, uh, project is to now integrate the facts and the details that I learned into the manuscript and to finish the epilogue. And so I haven't done a drawing yet. I'm imagining it won't really change my style too much because um, that's been pretty consistent. Mm. But uh, And so I never, I don't um, do my drawings from a plan. I do my drawings from receiving instructions from divinity and bowing down, surrendering. So I can't really say ahead of time like what the drawing is going to actually be like. So I'd have to answer that for you after the next drawing I do. Okay. What was, what was really just incredibly validating and helped me bring pieces of myself home was while I was there I got to be with other people who I had shared history with. And that you know people in the U.S. can be listen and be validating and supportive but there... I was with other survivors of the Rhodesian War. I was with people who knew exactly what I was talking about. And and one of the moments we had uh, Miami over for dinner, and there was another person who had helped find her and kind of make the connection um, to the story. And so we were, through a translator, we were telling them about that I do this thingy medicine. And, and it came about in the conversation because uh, Kali... Who, was also, who went through the war, he said to the translator, John, my husband, is influencing Robin. And I knew through translation what he meant was that he was energetically supporting me, kind of his masculine container was supporting me. And so that brought up for us about what happens when John and I do the singing medicine and that it's this combination of masculine and feminine really relaxing in to allow divinity to sink through us. And so at dinner, we went ahead and stood up and did the singing medicine for them. And they smiled and they nodded and they said, yes, you got that from here. You, you ah, excellent. Yeah. <laughs> the culture influenced you and you got that from here. And I thought, ah, oh, thank God, because I'm, I'm rather strange in America that I do the singing medicine. And for there, it's not strange at all. It's totally normal. And I could just feel my Zimbabwean self and my American self that I'm both. And that even though I was there a a short time, like around two months, it was so intense and, and so influential on me because it had so much trauma and so much love that, you know, it was like 
10 years of worth of experience packed into two months, and I'm eight years old, so I'm, a, you know, the impression of who I am and my worldview is high, is very strong at that time. And so they also told me that when the second family found me after the attack, that one of the really powerful uh, kind of religious people who did singing prayer sang over me to help me heal and very much focused on me. And when I heard that, it was so validating. And I thought, he didn't just sing and heal the wound on my head. He wrote and revealed my purpose and one of my strengths and one of my gifts. And he essentially activated that gift in me, as well as the the mothers in the first village. So, Lee, I can hardly get across to you how much confidence I gained in in who I am and that I make sense. Well, your singing, the singing that I heard you do with John at the last IONS conference was uh, very powerful, and, and I can understand why it would be so healing for people that need it. I would love to take you into uh, the hospital where I'm a chaplain and just have you go from room to room <laughs> singing for, singing to the people who who, who need that. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's uh, yeah. That's that's a powerful thing. And then just a, a note, just to um, talk about the IONS conference. That's in let's see, it's the beginning of April. I mean, I'm sorry, August. Yes. And uh, and John and I actually will be doing a singing medicine workshop that people can sign up for. It's in the workshop list, and I'm really looking forward to that. And it's it is limited to twenty. So if people are interested to go, then it'll probably be best to sign up for that soon. Well, they certainly should, and it's too bad it's uh, it's so limited, or uh, that it can't be repeated because uh, mm-hmm. it, it is uh, it's powerful. It's really powerful. Yeah. Well, yeah. On your in your first trip back to your body, and you do do describe like a long tunnel going back, and this great heart and the song that uh, she was singing to you. Um, that, uh, that that's a, a powerful description. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, I'm, te- I'm telling the audience go listen to to uh, the, the, our first interview because mm-hmm. uh, they'll learn a lot about what we're talking about he- here right now. Yeah, um, and the, and that's but, been the beautiful part about writing it all down is um, I have an agent and we have about I think about four publishers interested, so we're we're on the cusp of um, you know these things still take a while, but we're on the cusp of. Uh, getting a publisher and then me finishing the book and it will be available at some point. I w- will be astounded if um, if this book does not lead to a movie because it's such a powerful story and it's so visual. Uh, not only uh, the story, but I mean the art that that you've done that comes out of it. It would be a um, it would make a perfect film and it would be such a a positive um, statement for. Um, belief in near death experience. Mm-hmm. So I I hope I hope it goes that way. Um tell me uh, just a, a quick aside we're running out of time here but tell me the, what uh, turtles mean to you. <laughs> oh. Um so I have the the two turtle drawings that I've done so far and and so there's the creation story in um, different mythologies about that the world rests on the back of a turtle. Mm-hmm. And and so the Mama Africa turtle drawing I have is is that my world rested on her back, that you know, one of the women in the village who mothered me so much that because I was so desperate for mothering 
and her capacity to give it was so big, I just really leaned my whole being into her. And Lee, here's the fascinating part. When we were on at the location of where that first village was, and I got to bow down and do my prayers and give my thanks, and I felt them, the people of that village rush into me. And it was incredibly healing. And when we walked around the area, we went to an, a spot right across from the village where there were rocks that looked like the back of a turtle shell. Uh-huh. And I thought, and John looked at me and he pointed out, he said, no wonder you draw turtles. <laughs> wow. That's just one aspect of how this trip has completed the circle for you, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was peace after peace fell into place. It was incredibly validating. Wow. We are running close to the end of the show, and I want to... Uh, I want you to tell our audience how they can find your writings and your artwork, get your book and so forth, and, uh, mm-hmm. and just get and follow your story. So why don't you mm-hmm. tell them how to do that? Yeah, so my website address is my name, Robin Landsong, and that's L-A-N-D-S-O-N-G dot com. And so there's pictures of my trip on there. Um, there's a link to that. I have a video out on YouTube of the IONS conference of me telling my telling my first ND there. And um, and if people sign up on my newsletter at the bottom of any page of my website, then they will get notified of events and also when the book is ready. Very good. And you have a workshop coming up in the next few days too, don't you? Yeah. here in um, I live in Olympia, Washington, and so it's going to be in Lacey, which is just the town over. And it'll be on Saturday at the um, St. Placid uh, Priory. And people could go to my um, website or my Facebook page and get a connection to that. And so if they're, you know, around somewhere near Lacey, Washington, it's a day long. And it's really about helping people trust their mystical experiences, trust their spiritual experiences, because so often we don't have enough societal support to really drop into, like, what did that mean to me? And how can I cultivate seeing and noticing our different mystical moments? I spend a lot of my time as a chaplain encouraging people to believe in what they've seen and experienced on the mystical side. Robin, thank you so much for uh, yeah. being with us today. This was terrific. And to our listeners, if you'd like to listen again to this or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org. For more information about the work of IONS, check out that website, especially of the Denver upcoming Denver conference at IANDS.org. And tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.